Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks for joining for another episode of Cricket with an Accent. Quite the hiatus. Last time we spoke was in first week of January. Today, we have a special episode because we'll be talking a lot of English cricket. And thanks to our good friend, Sanket Singhbal, we have a common friend who's coming on uh, the podcast today from Melbourne Down Under, uh, Kevin Framp, who's uh, known on cricket as one of the more balanced cricket voices following English red ball heroics and some ODIs. So let me exp- uh, introduce uh, the man himself. Hey, Kevin, I know it's late night there and it's early morning in Boston. Thanks for doing this. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, talk about some of your, uh, how you, I mean, your, your background, how you got into the game. And I know while we were prepping the show, you said you your your fanship goes, or fandom goes as back as uh, 1979. Talk about it, how you got into the game. Yes, so the first test series I remember watching was England-India back in 1979. Um, I was basically looking for something to do over the summer. I hadn't seen a lot of cricket, and uh, I, I, I found myself watching the, watching the game one morning, and I was fascinated. Um, I was actually particularly fascinated by uh, – I was watching – uh, Bish and Bailey actually was the, one of the first things I remember, and I, I remember being fascinated by the fact that somebody could bowl a ball that slowly and still be effective. Um, so I've had a bit of a love for uh, for Indian spinners ever since. But uh, yeah, seventy nine was the first, and uh, I've been a, a cricket fanatic pretty much ever since. Who was captain of England? Was it Brearley or who was uh, the captain? Really? Yeah. 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 Really. So what are your impressions of him? I'm sure you were young uh, then, and uh, now you are so knowledgeable. How do you look back his uh, his captaincy? You think some of uh, the stuff in the past is glorified, but some of it is overrated? How do you reprocess what he was able to do as a captain? He he was a magnificent captain. He was a he was a very innovative captain. Um, you know, I mean, he's he's best known for for bringing Botham back from the dead in in 1981, and and he deserves a lot of credit for that. Um, but he also he also got um, you know we had people like David Gower come into the side in the late seventies. He he had a he had a decent side. I mean England were 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 a pretty decent side in the late seventies. Um, but he was a very good captain. I'd, I'd say he's probably the only specialist captain because uh, he he wasn't the greatest of batsmen. His first class record was decent, but he he never had a good Test record. Um, so he was probably the only specialist captain there's been, I would, I would imagine. Can we ever see something like that again? I was going to come to that because his uh, bat, he was purely in the team for his uh, leadership and his uh, man management and decisions, not for his batting. So can we mm. ever see a guy like that taking control of any cricket nation these days? I I wouldn't have thought so. I mean, in 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 those days... You used to have to serve an apprenticeship as a as a county captain before you could become England captain, but now you can you can captain a test side with very little first class experience of captaincy, which is you know which is what happened to Joe Root, happened to Alistair Cook. Um, it's captaincy's kind of a kind I wouldn't say it's a lost art, but the 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 road to captaincy is now very different to what it used to be and like a lot of things in test cricket it's something that you have to learn on the job a little bit because there aren't there aren't the games outside of the test matches you know and you you'd have you'd have tour games and people would go to england and they'd play a full 
they play a full slate of tour games to be able to get themselves into form. You don't have any of that. Um, test cricket is very much something that you learn on the job nowadays, and that goes for captaincy too. Hmm, no, very, very well said. I mean, the criteria in the world we operate in for cricket, and in fact, many sports have changed. And I remember I'm also a kid of the early 80s who took up cricket, and I used to remember these two-and-a-half-month-long tours when India or Pakistan would go to England, and then you would follow some mm. of these matches through newspapers, and you play the county matches, and then once mm. you've been there for almost like a good three weeks, you play a first test match. So, yeah, yeah sticking with the, the Braley and uh, the captaincy, I would encourage anyone who listened to this podcast, he gave a wonderful, I think, Bradman oration, I think in 2013. So, uh, or the, it, there was something about, I think, sports psychology too in that. So, if you can get a hands-on, oh. just read it, it's, it's amazing what he... Uh, he, go ahead. He's a he's a professional psychologist now. Yeah, you know, and and, and again, uh, uh, this is already a wonderful conversation because none of this was planned or in my mind. So I started a new job back then, and my uh, manager was really into sports, and you know, he was trying to break me into the team, and we would talk. The only small talk was sport, and then I only followed tennis and cricket, and he was typical, you know, American uh, sports, uh, you know, fan with football and baseball. And then the mm. common point, point was I shared that um, uh, Mike Brearley piece with him, and he was just fascinated. He read that. It took him a couple of days, and he had so many questions, and you know that was a good connecting point. So let, let's get back to the podcast. So uh, how, 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 does, uh, how, how do you recall the English captaincy has been given? Because in India, and even I think Pakistan is a replica of how Indian mindset works, because you know the same uh, neighboring country. Uh, we've had this uh, two or the top. The captaincy usually goes to the two or three top players in the test test team. M. S. Dhoni was a clear outlier, and Azruddin got it. He was one of the best players, but he was never a candidate. But otherwise, we've been we've seen captaincy goes to you know who's the best batsman or sometimes the best all rounder in Kapil Dev's case. How has been the selection in the English uh, captaincy, and uh, are there any more outliers since your days of? There was some, there was some, since I've been watching, it's certainly gone that way more and more so. Um, After Brearley, there was Botham, um, who was picked, obviously, because he was the best player in the side at that point. Um, Bob Willis as captain was a little bit of an outlier just because you don't get too many fast bowlers as captains. But probably probably the biggest outlier I remember was we had a summer of, test matches against the West Indies. I think it was 1988. Um, Gatting started as captain, but then got suspended for some off-the-field stuff. Um, And we had John Embury as captain for one game. And then Chris Cowdery, of all people, was drafted in as captain for a couple of games. So uh, that was probably about as big an outlier in terms of not just captaincy, but getting picked for England anyway, um, as you can possibly imagine. Um, but yeah, generally, generally the uh, the captaincy goes to the best player, um, not necessarily the person that you think might be the best captain. Has the demands of the modern game, and we've seen clearly the English board after the 2015 World Cup departure has uh, is pretty clear with evidence and results wise have given equal weightage to the white ball cricket. Uh, has the overall structure for the red ball changed? Because I know there's been demand. I think. Uh, Kevin, I think Patrick Hand, who's a journalist for, I think, Middlesex, was in the podcast a couple of years ago, and he said, you know, English board had to make a clear decision 
on which direction they were going to go if they want to be relevant in these ICC tournaments. So how is the overall red ball cricket? I know Ash is still the pinnacle. Has the structure changed? Do you follow the county circuit closely and any the, observations? Not, not in any great detail, but I, I think the main thing that's happened with county cricket is that the the county championship is now played in the the sort of outlying months of the English summer. So it's played in April and May um, and then in September. So the problem that you've got in the county game is that a lot of ga- a lot of games are played on fairly sporting pitches, um, which encourages your, your your traditional English seamer. Um, who isn't going to be necessarily particularly effective on any other kind of pitch. Um, and it makes batting difficult too. So one of one of the things that you hear about English, about the county game in England, is that they want to try and get the county game played more in the traditional months of summer on better pitches. Uh, the other thing that English cricket is suffering for because those county games are played in early season and late season, they're played on pitches that don't necessarily encourage spin bowling. So we have a little bit of a, a dearth of decent spinners in England at the moment. Um, and it's going to take a few years, I think, for that to, to wash its way through the system. Um, Ashley Giles seems to seems to understand some of the challenges that are, that are ahead for the English county game. Um, so that's the good thing. Um, where that's going to fit in with the 100 over the next couple of years, um, they, they seem to be contradictory impulses to me. So it'll be interesting to see where the English county game goes and how it evolves in its structure over the next few years. Yeah, I was, uh, you know, in one of the Twitter DMs, again, bring up Sanket. You know, we talk, uh, I mean, he's my cricket source whenever I'm not talking tennis. I'll mm. reach out to him to get his opinions and uh, value, you know, his knowledge a lot. So I was just uh, running it by him with uh, the cr- cricket structure, like you mentioned. Teams don't get a traveling schedule. Suppose winning in India is going to be, I think, as we already know, uh, going to be a huge task for any team, including England and Australia. You know, if you say that, oh, yes. call them the big three. So I was asking a hypothetical question, Sanket, that do you see? Uh, of course, BCCI has to allow it, but do you see? Uh, English or Aussie players or even South African players, you know, trying to get a couple of, you know, maybe contracts with a Ranji, trophy, a Ranji team so they can get acquainted with the condition. And he said, yeah, it wouldn't happen, even though Kevin Peterson, I think, did play for South Zone in 2004 and 2005. Uh, again, very hypothetical. Do you entertain that idea if that's something, uh, someone who's not part of the white ball cricket, you think that's an option a player can go in the future? Of course. A lot has to be agreed upon by the respective boards. But do you see that could be a trend? Um, I don't necessarily see it as being a trend, but I think it would be an extremely good idea. Um, I know, for example, different country, but I know Mason Crane played some first-class cricket for New South Wales. Um, and it can't do anybody any harm to go and get some experience playing playing in other countries. You wouldn't have thought. Um, the, the The question is, I guess, who those players are going to be, because depending on whether you get p- not necessarily picked for the uh, for the England Test side, but you know you could get picked for the England Lions, for example, and they have a reasonably full 
uh, they have a reasonably full schedule at certain times as well. So I guess it depends on whether those players have time available and if they do, whether the players concerned are of sufficient quality uh, that Ranji Trophy sides or Sheffield Shield sides are going to want to pick them up. Um, but absolutely, I mean, it, it would have to be a good idea. And when you think about the number of overseas players that come and play county cricket in England and gain invaluable experience, you, you would think that English players would want to do something like that in, in reverse, you would have thought, to broaden their, their cricket education a little bit. Yeah, there are not many Cheteshwar Pajaras or Ishan Sharmas out there. Most cricketers are trying to play all formats. And uh, you're right, the calendar is so packed. You know, you have to give up. There's such an opportunity cost. You give up something to hold on to something. Yeah. And in a way, Pujara is one of my favorites. In a way, it's easy. I think for him to hone his craft, he plays a set calendar and then he's either playing county or, you know, honing his skills at the domestic level. So, yeah, we are already 13 minutes into into the podcast. If there's any young listeners, we don't want to, you know, lose their interest to say politely, because, you know, I can go on about this stuff a lot. So let's come back to the current English side. And, uh, <laughs> you know, when you stay on Twitter a lot, it seems like that's the universe, but there's a real world that's much bigger than Twitter. But still, even in the real world, I've talked to some friends who think James Anderson is a one-trick pony. So I know this is not a very true assessment, but casual fans or fans who just follow, say, Indian cricket, would think, oh, he doesn't do well in India. How do you assess Anderson and how do you assess this criticism? And is it part and parcel? I know it's a loaded question. Tackle it any way you want. Um, look, I think there was some, there was definitely some truth to it up to a certain point in, in Jimmy's career. His, his overseas record wasn't great. Um, but certainly you, you look at his record in the subcontinent over the last certainly the last couple of UAE tours um, and the last couple of Indian tours, he's bowled magnificently. You know, he's, he's, he's developed a lot of variation with his bowling. He bowls the wobble seam um, and his, his modus operandi is different, obviously in the subcontinent. But, uh, but you look at, you look at his figures over the last few years. And I, I read, I read somewhere I think he's he's taken he's taken his wickets at an average of about 21 over the last three or four years um, all over the world. So, look, I, I think there was definitely some truth about that in Jimmy's in Jimmy's early career or even up to his mid career. But certainly over the last eight or nine years. No, there's uh, there's there's no there's no truth in that at all. Anderson is a wonderful bowler and he'll be remembered rightly is as, as one of Brit, uh, one of England's all-time greats no I definitely agree with it but I needed you to come and validate this because um, I couldn't have said it any better so a counter argument now um, again going back to 80s where you know you and I you know were watching a lot of cricket England you know with Mike Gadding and all these uh, cricketing you know uh, not powerhouses, but like good teams, was a tough place for India as if you to tour, and uh, still mm. is for many countries because of the conditions. And depending on when you play the test, if you play a test in May or June, it's more, uh, you know, seem friendly than say in July and August. So has yeah. something changed in world cricket? Why are batsmen, some batsmen, struggling more? Uh, is it the byproduct of everybody's playing so much cricket? There's no time to adjust to alien conditions. There's no warm-up games. Uh, or is just uh, some people say batsmen are better today. I mean, that's a very 
uh, you know, you can walk at your own peril on that line. But why the struggle continues uh, when touring teams come to England, maybe with the exception of few, a lot of people can't play Anderson and Broad and the condition has just become tough. I think I think there are I think there are two things. I think the first is the point that we touched on before um, that you just don't get the opportunity to play the warm up games and acclimatize yourself to overseas conditions anymore. I mean, England, for example, are notorious for for playing the first test of series very very badly away from home. Um, you know, so if you're if you're a batsman. It's it's incredibly difficult because you're getting off a plane, you're playing a couple of what I would say are pretty much pub games to, to warm up, and then you've got to go and play in a test match. And certainly if you're a batsman, you make one mistake and, and you're gone. Um, and I think the other thing that feeds into that conversation is that batsmen temperamentally, because of the different formats now, are generally more attacking. Most batsmen play a higher risk game too. Um, and they also have to flip around between the different formats. Um, and I think all of those things together just combine to make the job of batting in a lot of ways harder than it's ever been. Um, you know, there are, there are some things about it that are, that are better too. Um, you know, bats are better. Boundaries are, boundaries are shorter. So you can, you can score more runs more quickly. Um, but I do think that it's extremely, it, it's becoming more and more difficult for batsmen to play long innings in, in test cricket. Um, and, and like you said, even in those uh, warm-up games, it's not a real game. The surface is not a replica no. of what you'll see at Edgebaston or, you know, at Lords. It's just, uh, you know, you go and play. And those games are not even serious now. It's, something has changed. I believe... Uh, the the mm. first class games had full 11s not now more than 11 people can play and you know you, the teams can plug in plug out players right that's also changed so it's not a feeling of a yeah. real warm up game no i mean they you know they're they're 13 aside games um the last england tour of australia i remember one of the warm up games was played on a club pitch in perth you know that that's 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 no way to to warm up to face a, a full strength Australian pace attack. Sure. So on that note, <clears throat> since you followed the pulse of uh, you know English cricket uh, very closely, and you know a lot of my audience, it's not a big audience, but a lot of the audience is of Indian origin. So let's bring in some views on uh, some of the Indian batsmen. So over the years, who are some of the memorable performers? from India uh, on the English shores. Uh, do you want to rank them or, I mean, don't want to put you on the spot, but do some innings stand out <laughs> like Kohli's at Edgebaston, Azhar at Lord's. Uh, what are your memories? And, you know, considering the attack, the conditions, the circumstances. My, my favorite Indian player um, was, has always been Gavaskar. Um, and I, I, I said earlier on that the, the first series I saw was the 79 series. And I actually remember watching an awful lot of his, I think it was two, 220 something he got at the Oval in the game. In, in oh, that and game they were chasing, he, right? He won. Yeah, that's a mm -hmm. crazy game. Yeah. Just, you know, and just the, um, the crispness of his movement and then the shot selection. And he just, you know, you, you, you would watch. You would watch an, a, the epitome of, of perfect batting 
um, you know, to a to a twelve year old like me was was somebody like uh, so somebody this, like Gavaskar. Yeah, Vayan on the they were chasing four hundred plus, if I'm not mistaken, and it was against the likes of Willis. Yeah. And who was in the English lineup? So the listeners can appreciate that. Uh, would have been Willis, Botham, um, gosh, who else? Phil Edmonds, I think, played in that game. Um, and they end, they ended up, I think, ten runs short or something. They they had two wickets left and ten runs short. And cricket being what it is, the the game was called as a draw. Um, only cricket could do that. Yeah. No, we used to watch this show. I mean, I watched that game in highlights very late. I think in eighty four or eighty five, Gavaskar had started producing a TV show uh, where mm. it used to be called Sunil Gavaskar Presents, and he would bring classic matches, not only India's any, and that match was shown. And as a kid, I just couldn't believe it that you know. Yeah. Again, I was very young. I didn't know what to make of chases. I didn't know, you know, the team batting fourth is always you know fast facing a challenge of a surface that has changed and it's just pressure. The plus, you know, the drudgery of day five. But yeah, he miraculously scored 221 and got in, India almost home. And I remember Kapil Dev went for a six and was caught at the boundary or was stumped. I don't know. Yeah. The memory is, is hazy. And then yeah. everybody was mad. Like this result was five years ago and friends in school were talking, oh man, if he had only, you know, just pushed two covers and took singles and, you know, and, you know, this is a match from five years ago. But uh, that match had so much significance. So Gavaskar's one, again, he's. I also rate him very highly because he scored runs at the top of the order. And I think most people who know their test cricket, even if they haven't seen him, you can't discount any of the achievements that he had with West Indies and England. Yeah, I don't think he scored that much in Australia. Particularly uh, in that era too, because the, the, the bowling attacks in that era, every team had, you know, at least a couple of world-class bowlers. There were... You know, it, it, it's, it's a little bit of a cliche to say things were better in, in certain periods, and I don't really want to go down that road. But there were no, there, there weren't, there weren't, there weren't a lot of easy runs in Test cricket in those days. Um, and for and him to also, average, there was also not data 50. like the, the data that's available today, the coaching staff, the you know, the entourage that travels. You know, so it used to be a very different sport. I remember. Uh, a documentary where Imran Khan was giving a lecture on the late uh, Mansoor Ali Khan Patodi. And Imran mm. Khan said that Ian Chappell had told him about Patodi that he saw him, you know, I, th- I think some county game, that he was going into bat. And he just, there were two or three bats laying down and he just grabbed one bat, then the other, and then just walked out to bat. And who would do that today? Yep. And again, yeah. given he played most of his career with one eye. I mean, there's so many stories that just go unnoticed and of course, past is the past. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, there's no fault of anyone today of not fully reflecting on it because we all live in the moment. But there's so many great players that have, you know, played in somewhat difficult conditions, and no fault of today's players because the sport mm-hmm. is very professional now. So anyway, let's not derail from. Uh, I mean, I'm derailing. Uh, so who else besides Gavaskar <laughs> who stands out? Um, I tell you what, my uh, one of my best memories of watching live Test cricket. I was lucky enough to be in Sydney in early 2000, it was, and I saw VBS Laxman get 160 at the SCG against a, one of the best Australian pace attacks there's been. Um, the game was lost for India, so in, in one sense there was no pressure on him. 
Um, but it was just a magnificent innings. He flayed that attack all over the place. And I didn't know a huge amount about him at that point. Um, but uh, I watched that innings and you, you just have to admire that. And he turned out to be, uh, pardon the pun, a very, very special player. Yeah, quite, quite, quite a player. Um, he hasn't had quite the success that he had in Australia compared to that in England. So, how, how would you rate again? Let's no, come. So, go ahead. How would you sorry, rate? No, Virat, his, his, Virat, record, his sorry. record in England wasn't great. Um, yeah, different skill set there, right? Uh, Rahul Dravid mm. and Az- Azruddin have had good records in England, and, you know, even Ganguly played uh, some special knocks. Uh, so, anyone else uh, from the Indian shores before we change the uh, conversation? On the English shores, in, Indian player in the in- English shores. Um, in ter- well, the Kapil Dev played some great innings in England too. He was always uh, he was always an enormous amount of fun to watch. I mean, people uh, people always remember the 1990 Lords Test for Gucci's 300 and 100, but uh, Kapil Dev, I can't remember if he made a hundred or a ninety odd, but uh, he again he just he thrashed Eddie. I remember him thrashing Eddie Hemmings for about four or five sixes. To save um, the follow-on, that was crazy. Yeah, we were listening to the commentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he was uh, he was an enormous amount of fun to watch. Kapildev, what a what a fantastic attitude to the game he had. Okay. All right. So let's get more uh, in the current times. England just victorious, three-one uh, in South Africa again. Me and Sanket were predicting. I got lucky. Uh, he thought the surfaces there would present challenge, and uh, and then I needed to second guess. Yeah, he could be right, but England did come out. So, what's your assessment of that Test series? Did toss play an important role? I mean, that toss has become such an important ingredient uh, in today's Look, cricket. Not to discount Root and his men winning the series, but uh, your recollection of what just transpired like a couple of weeks ago. Um, look, there was certainly some some there was certainly some fortune in it. Um, I think they won they they won all four tosses, didn't they? I think so. That that absolutely makes a difference. Um, but I thought it was a very very good series win, um, particularly because England did their usual trick of starting out very poorly, um, and for them to come back as well as they did uh, overseas, where traditionally they they haven't gone well. I thought was an excellent effort. Now, obviously, there's a caveat that South Africa are not at their best at the moment. Um, but having said that, their bowling attack is still is still very very handy. Philando Rabada and Maharaj is uh, is a perfectly decent bowling attack. So, uh, you know, I I was very impressed with England. And what in what I liked about that series in particular uh, were two things. Firstly, that a lot of the major contributors were the younger players. Um, and also they contributed in areas where we've had some struggles, particular parts of the batting order. You know, we've been looking for an opener to replace Alistair Cook. Um, and all of a sudden, Dominic Sibley looks like he might be that man. Um, you know, and if you combine that with Rory Burns, who's beginning to settle in nicely, um, Mark Wood, took nine wickets in the last game. If, you know, if he can keep himself fit, I think he's taken, he's taken something like 20 wickets or so in his, in his last, in his last three games, I think. Um, 
you know, so there are there are an awful lot of really good signs. Now, you know, obviously, as I say, the caveat is the, the standard of the opposition and there's going to be some much tougher opposition this time next year. Um, but, but, you know, by and large, I thought it was a very impressive series win for England. Is South Africa the playing condition? Of course, uh, they're going through their own transformation. Is South Africa one of the toughest places uh, because the wickets, you know, usually have green tops or there's grass for the first few days. Is it one of the big achievements considering, and not just England, I think for most test teams, it's become a tough place to play. Look, I think historically South Africa has been one of the toughest places to go and win. Um, but there's no doubt that's being, that's devalued a little bit because they're, they're, they're going through their own problems at the moment. They've, you know, they've, they've lost so many players through retirement. They've been decimated by coal packs. Um, so they're, they're not the side that they were. Um, but, you know, you can, it's, it's a cliche, but you can only beat the team that's in front of you. And, and England did that and they did it very, very well. Um, and they got better and better as the tour went on. Um, you know, the, uh, performance in Cape Town was excellent, um, the performance in Port Elizabeth um, is, was just about a perfect performance. That was the template for how this England team is going to want to play. Um, get themselves big runs in the first innings, scoreboard pressure, um, and then bowl with, with skill and accuracy f- uh, for the remainder of the game, which is what they did. Hmm. With the World, T, uh, World Test Championship you know, in, in already motion, England has a home stretch coming where I believe they play West Indies in Pakistan. Is that correct? Yes. So you think yeah. are they in position to make some sort of a run? Because right now, uh, most pundits, most fans are still too early. India-Australia final looks like the way to go. But can England crash the party? Or are they in the conversation? They're certainly in the conversation. I mean, they're you know they're in third place. I think they're two wins, one or two wins behind Australia. And as you say, they've got six very winnable test matches coming up. Um, now, I, I have to be honest, I'm not entirely sure how the point system works for the World Test Championship. I think you need a degree to figure out exactly how it works. But there's there's no doubt that there's, they're in the conversation. Now, whether they'll still be in the conversation this time next year uh, after the India tour is another question because that's, uh, you know, it, it's, it's very conceivable that that's going to be a, a reasonably heavy defeat. So we'll uh, we'll see where we're at 12 months from now. But uh, I would expect England to be winning more games than they're losing, certainly until they get to India. Uh, England is one of the teams that has played India quite tough. Even though they lost the last time around, they were in sessions, they were in matches. Root played really well. Uh, of course, this is going to be a slightly new side, few new touring members. There's still long ways mm. to go. Uh, but do you think... Uh, They'll be focused on prepping for that tour, as if, at least from a fan, you would wish they go in better like Australia did a few years ago. They spent a good few weeks in Dubai to get ready. You think that's at least that's the onus on English team if the calendar allows? That's the first question. Oh, absolutely, absolutely, and it, it's one of the things that makes the upcoming series in Sri Lanka quite interesting too, because uh, that will. De facto, that will be a, a, a preparation series for India. So we'll we'll take Bess, we'll take Jack Leach, we'll take Matt Parkinson, and uh, and let's see what they have as as three spin bowlers. 
Yeah, uh, again, playing in India has become the biggest challenge in the sport. And, uh, you know, when I was growing up, the conversation was you were always graded on how Indian teams did outside, not how mm. foreign teams coming to India. They would always either win or put a good performance. So as a spectator of the sport, uh, again, not a controversial question, but a real question that uh, rank turners, green tops are the same or talk to us about the difference because... Uh, you always see fandom saying flat track bully or, you know, you put on a rank turner. <laughs> what is the balancing act here? You know, what has to give in to kind of uh, create a neutral narrative when you talk about tours to India? I don't I don't have a problem with with rank turners. I don't have a problem with green tops. But what what I have an issue with in cricket are wickets where the the toss decides the game. So, you know, stereotypically a wicket that, that is decent to bat on for the first day and a half, so the team wins the toss, scores 400. Then halfway through the second day, it starts to take spin. Um, by the third day, it's turning square. I don't have a problem with, with turners because they're the same for all four innings. You know, if, if, a, if a pitch turns from ball one, um, that doesn't bother me too much. Um, it's only the pitch that behaves differently, so toss uh, it becomes a huge factor. That's what you're saying. Mm. I mean, I, ideally, what what you want is a is a game where the the first innings belongs to the bat and the second innings belongs to the ball. That that would be that would be the ideal test match in my eyes. Um, but as you know, as long as the as long as the wicket doesn't deteriorate overly much. So let me ask you um, another question. With the current scenario on a good pitch, is England one of the few sides that can lose a toss and still make a competitive test match in India? I mean, uh, you know, coming from you may seem biased, but again, you know, uh, for some, I, I look. I, in all honesty, I think I think we would struggle. I'm I'm not. I I think our I think our batting will go okay. Um, what worries me in India is our bowling. I don't think, I don't think we have the spin attack to, uh, to, to really test India in their own conditions. Um, unless the three spinners produce or show something to me over the next 12 months, which, which they might, they absolutely might. Um, and of course it depends what the selection is too. It, it may well be that Moeen Ali comes back. It may be that Adil Rashid comes back. Um, so we'll we'll see where we are in twelve months. But if if you had to ask me at this point, twelve months out, um, you know, if if we're playing five test matches in India, I'd probably expect us to lose four. All right, let's talk a little bit about Joe Root. First, let's talk about the captain. Then I'll bring in Joe Root, the batsman. So, mm. how impressed are you by his trajectory? And uh, is he a natural leader? Has he learned on the job? What are your thoughts when he first got the job and how has the report card been for you since he took over look i think he's he's definitely improving as a captain i think he he struggled when he first got the job for for the reasons that we were talking about earlier that uh, that he hadn't had a lot of captaincy experience and you have to learn on the job um but he certainly got better um there were certainly some some instances in the ashes series in england where his field placings directly led to wickets um, there was one in particular in Cape Town 
in this last series where he put Jimmy Anderson in at leg slip and the next ball went straight to him. Um, so, yeah, look, I, I think Rude is definitely improving as a captain. Um, what I also like is the spirit in this England side. They're, they're clearly playing for him, uh, you know, to, to, to an outside eye. that There doesn't seem to be any division in this England side, um, which hasn't always been the case historically. The, the team certainly appear to be responding to him and playing for him. Um, and that is, in a lot of ways, as important as uh, as any as as tactical decisions. Um, and he's he's certainly been under pressure in terms of his captaincy. There were there were people saying, you know, as, as late as the end of the New Zealand tour uh, that we could do with moving to to a different captain. Um, I've certainly had discussions along those lines on Twitter. Um, but I think he's uh, he's definitely bought himself uh, the next the, certainly the next twelve months, probably the next eighteen months. Um, and uh, you know you, you can't ask any more than for somebody to improve, which is uh, which I think is what he's doing. Well, that's uh, that's quite uh, quite well captured there. So again, let's switch to Ruth the batsman. Uh, I mean, I have this funny, uh, I'm sure other people have said that too, but I think if uh, cricket had the big four, like tennis's big four, uh, it's mm. easy to say Root is the Andy Murray, and the other three are slightly above, even though yep. he's one of my favorite players to watch. Uh, so how has he performed yeah, I, I think, as a batsman? I think, that's, I think that's fair. I mean, he's, you know, everybody talks about his conversion rate, um, his uh, his tendency to get out between 50 and 100. Um we thought that he may have got over that with with the double hundred that he got at Hamilton on the New Zealand tour, um, but the South Africa tour again he got lots of starts and he got himself in a few times and got himself out, um, you know which is he he needs to get over that he needs to push on and and play those big def- match defining innings because he's good enough to do that. Uh, but he hasn't done it for, for a, over a consistent period for a while now. And that is a worry for England because this England side doesn't have enough good batsmen that we can afford to have root. I wouldn't say underperforming because he averaged 45 in South Africa, which is a perfectly decent, perfectly decent series. Um, but we need more from him. Um, the, the, the person who's become the go-to player in that England side now um, Certainly, as as a batsman as well as as a as a bowler is Ben Stokes and and Joe Root really needs to be doing that go to job as a batsman. He needs to be the one that we can rely on. No, exactly. This one guy we were going to shift the conversation to. What a player! What a year he had. Again, in the in the past, in cricket and in tennis, the two sports I follow closely. English media has been always known to sometimes over-popularize or dramatize their achievements, which I guess others do it too, but I think English just, uh, you know, tabloids just get, mm. the, get the name. So, yeah, this is a big match player. I mean, even if you look at, he bats pretty high for a 37 average, but, uh, you know, the bigger the situation, he's he's always ready and he's always in the mix, even if you don't follow cr- English cricket like, like me. Mm. But if I look at oh, big and, scores, big matches, and, and his name is there. Go ahead. He's he's raised his level as a as a as a test player, um, and that's you know before we even start on his one day stuff over the summer. But as a as a test player in the last 
12 months or so, he's gone to the next level. Um, he's, he's averaging over 50. He made that incredible 100 at Headingley. He, he made 100 in South Africa. Um, and he, he made the 72 in Cape Town, which gave us the time to bowl South Africa out in the second innings. Um, he's, uh, he's becoming the indispensable player in this England side. There's no doubt about that. It's quite quite the match winner in in all all formats, and I was surprised. Again, uh, call me, uh, you know, I'm doing a podcast, but I'm not as knowledgeable. Uh, I had conversations uh, with people that why is he batting so high, and then again, I like Josh Butler uh, more for his mm. white ball heroics, and uh, that brings uh, the focus on him. What is his test future uh, like, according to you? Because he's gotten starts, uh, even in Ashes, he gotten starts, he got some runs, but I don't think there was like a big Forget 100, there wasn't even a big 70 or 80 somewhere. I think he's always in the 28 to 45 range. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, he he, he had a poor series in, in South Africa, and he certainly looked as if he was devoid of confidence with the bat. Uh, he even looked out of confidence in the one-day stuff. Look, Butler is Butler is a tough one. Uh, I think Joss Butler is is a genius as a one-day player. He'd, uh, there's, he'd be one of the first people on my team on my team sheet as a one day player. Um, but as a test player, I think he struggles because he doesn't necessarily know what tempo to play at. Um, and he doesn't have a lot of experience of playing long innings. His first class record isn't great. Um, he doesn't have many first class hundreds. Where does he you bat know, in so first class? Is he top three, top four or he bats down the order? No, he, he he bats he bats six or seven, I believe, because um, he uh, he went from Somerset to Lancashire, I think, to try and play more red ball cricket, but that didn't necessarily work out either. Um, and you know, like like everything else in life, um, the more you do something, the better you're going to get at it. But uh, he he doesn't have the experience and the framework to play those those long first class innings and to I, I think that the tempo is the struggle with him you know does he does he play his natural game in all circumstances and and risk getting out does he try and play a more defensive game and build an innings does he have the defense to play that game and build an innings is he, is um, he the best man with the gloves uh, to retain his red ball place or does he have competition from Bearstow and others or uh, what does his future uh, the, look like? The certainly the, the best of the test wicket keepers is is Ben Folks, um, who's been picked for Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't think he should have been dropped. Um, he was dropped in the West Indies, and I don't think he should have been. He had a fantastic series on debut in Sri Lanka, had one bad game and got dropped, which I thought was incredibly harsh. Um, but having said that, Ed Smith, chairman of selectors, is a big Butler fan. Um, and Butler is going on the tour to Sri Lanka. He's going on the tour, I believe, as number one wicketkeeper. So it may well be that he keeps his spot. Um, he wouldn't if I was picking the team. Um, I think it may be time to move to Ben Folks and just say to Joss, go and play one day cricket. He's the, uh, he's the presumptive captain of that one day team whenever Owen Morgan decides to, uh, to call it a day. And maybe that's, that's where Joss's future is. Um, it would be sad if that's the case because he's an incredible talent. 
Um, but to, uh, to to my mind, he's he's underperformed, and it's no longer a small sample size. He's played forty odd Test matches or whatever it is, um, and I just I just think if if he's only going to average you know thirty odd, then Ben Folks can do that, and Ben Folks is a superior keeper. All right, well said. So let's cap this conversation off. Uh, I know you were primarily known as an English fanalist, fan plus analyst. Uh, (laughs) Indian team starting the test match tomorrow. By the time this podcast will be released, the first session would be in. Uh, You recently Mm. saw New Zealand got a glimpse of how competitive they can be at home. Uh, Given the toss and the surface, uh, I expect somewhat of a green top when India takes a field. You think this English team can challenge India or vice versa? Does India have the goods to come out victorious in the series? In New Zealand, absolutely. I'm not sure I'd agree with the characterization of, of Wellington as a green top, though. It's, uh, it, it's a, it's a, it, historically, it's a strange wicket, Wellington. It can be lively for the first day, but then it tends to flatten out, um, and it's beautiful to battle. And don't forget, there's been two partnerships of 300 at, at the Basin Reserve in about the last five or six years. Um, New Zealand did it twice in two years, so... Uh, don't uh, don't assume that Wellington's going to be a green top, but uh, look, there's there's no doubt. I mean, the India India now have the attack to be able to compete in all conditions, which which they haven't necessarily had historically. But with that pace attack, they can go anywhere and uh, and be a challenge. So I would it, it's going to be a really good series. I'm looking forward to it because that. Uh, and it'll be interesting to see how New Zealand bounce back too, because they were awful in Australia. Australia is an incredibly hard place to tour, as we know. Um, but New Zealand came into that series full of hope, and they were they were absolutely massacred by by Australia, and they uh, they didn't put up much of a fight. Uh, so they're going to need to go home and show something. So I'm really looking forward to that series. It's going to be a really good watch. All right, Kevin, this was wonderful. I learned quite a few things uh, in the podcast. Thanks for taking time out. It's late in Melbourne. I'm sure you have to get ready for work tomorrow. Uh, yeah, let's let's do this yep. again. If you have time, we have to get Sanket on. We have to find some common grounds where all three different time zones we live in can work. But this is good for now. Absolutely. Yeah, this was a pleasure. Absolutely. I'd be very happy to do that. It's uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. 